This free podcast of Speaking of Faith is provided by American Public Media. Please support this valuable public radio service and contribute today. Go to the station listings page at speakingoffaith.org to learn more about becoming a member of your local public radio station. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, the second part of two narratives, reflections on the Israeli-Palestinian present. We continue listening to experiences and perceptions that divide Israelis and Palestinians, even as they share a land they both consider holy. This hour, the intersection of the spiritual and the political in the lives of two Palestinians. As Hamas forms a cabinet and Israel approaches a critical election, we probe their stories and their sources of despair and of hope. I think we need to touch the conflict at the human level. If we still deal with the conflict at the political level, official level, we really become faceless in these history. And we become just objects, numbers, etc. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. I'm Krista Tippett. This hour, the intersection of the spiritual and the political in the lives of two Muslim Palestinians. These men are deeply rooted in the suffering of their people. They've also sought to understand the conflict in their land from both sides. They describe their fears and hopes as Israel builds a barrier of separation and Hamas assumes power. From American public media, this is Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, the conclusion of our series, Two Narratives, Reflections on the Israeli-Palestinian Present. Life in the Holy Land is imprinted with 3,000 years of sacred and secular history. The distinct narratives we now know as Israeli and Palestinian began in 1948. The State of Israel was created in that year in the aftermath of war. For Israeli Jews, 1948 is known as the Year of Independence, a return to sacred ancestral homeland after centuries of exile and the trauma of the Holocaust. But in the Arabic of Palestinians, 1948 is the Nakba, or catastrophe. Half of the previous Arab population of the former British Palestine fled or was expelled, 600 to 900,000 men, women, and children. What we today know as the Palestinian territories came under the control of Jordanian and Egyptian and eventually Israeli forces. The Oslo peace process of the 1990s initiated a gradual transition towards Palestinian autonomy in portions of the long-contested West Bank and Gaza Strip. The failure of the Oslo process has left bitterness and uncertainty on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian divide. Last week, we explored this history through the eyes of Yossi Klein Halevi, an American-born Israeli journalist. My first guest this hour, Mohammed Abu Nimr, is an American citizen and a scholar of international relations at American University in Washington, D.C. He is also a Palestinian citizen of Israel. In 1948, his family remained in the land that became Israel. Today, some 20% of the Israeli population is Arab, mostly Palestinian. I come from a village in the north of the Galilee, near the Tiberius region. The village is mixed, uh, Muslim, Christians, and uh, Druze, which is another sect of uh, Islam. At least that's how it is defined in the Muslim world or the Arab world. My house, my family has always been in the border between the Christian and the Druze, our lands, our houses, and that's, I think, uh, influenced a great deal of my upbringing, of finding myself always standing in the middle. Mohammed Abu Nimr's family straddled other divisions of modern Palestinian Muslim culture. His grandfather, who shared their family home, was devout. He made his pilgrimage to Mecca in 1915 as he was coming back from fighting the British with the Ottoman Empire in Yemen. He became a spiritual leader of the village, representing their Muslim community with new Israeli leaders after 1948. 
But Abu Nimr's father was a more secular Palestinian devoted to the nationalist cause. Mohammed Abu Nimr himself became a leader of the Palestinian Student Union when he attended Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He led protests and advocated for Palestinian rights. A turning point for his future work of conflict resolution came one day in his sophomore year. He was having trouble following a sociology lecture at the university. I couldn't write fast enough in Hebrew. And I went ahead and asked the man who was sitting in front of me. And the moment he turned his face towards me, I knew I made a mistake because I recognized him as one of the leaders of the right-wing student group on campus that we usually fight with them. One of the right-wing Jewish groups? Yeah, Israeli Jewish right-wing. Okay. And he gave me the look and he said, if you cannot read Hebrew, you should go to the Arab countries where you belong. And, you know, I was boiling angry. There's a group of about 120 students in the room and uh, sort of a softer hand uh, touched my shoulder and the student, she said, take my notes. And I looked at her and, you know. And she was Jewish also? Yeah, contained Uh my anger. And uh, this was my first one-on-one human face of the other. But with that woman, she basically began talking. She invited me to her house with her family and her husband and children and even dog. (laughs) And I sat there and the Passover was the first Passover I had in the Jewish house. And we spoke not about politics, but mostly about relationship, family and so forth. And our relationship developed. I invited her to my family and they hosted her and her children and husband. And they still call her the Jewish woman with the dog. <laughs> because that was the first time that they would allow something like that uh, down in the house. And then we became facilitators. We decided to y- lead. You and she together? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah we began uh, leading the Arab-Jewish dialogue group on the Hebrew University campus. And um, by 1989, when I left Israel-Palestine, uh, I've worked for about 10 years in, in bringing Arabs and Jews inside Israel together for dialogue and coexistence. And uh, by 1989, I've realized that, you know, I've got tired, burned out, and there was very little support during the Intifada. Well, that's what I was going to say. In that time, in 1987, the first Intifada Intifada, began, which I guess we translate as uprising often. But is it true that the translation would really be more like a shaking off? Is that? Yeah, shaking off something off your shoulder or that like uh, holding you back or holding you down. How did that affect the work you were doing of bringing Jews and Palestinians together? Yeah, up to then, uh, December 87, we managed to get participants, uh, Arabs and Jews. And the political context was hard, but the violence, the tension, the resistance at that time wasn't on daily basis in, in a very mobilized way. Once the Intifada started, the Israeli schools began expressing more fears and more suspicion of uh, attending these meetings. The Arab uh, kids and the Arab participants also and their teachers began voicing more and more the question of, you know, why we do this? Is this really helpful? Now it is time to express more solidarity with the Palestinians who are being uh, oppressed and killed on daily basis in the West Bank and Gaza. And really you had to fight three battles, one with the Jewish community, one with the Arab community, and the third one within yourself. Uh, Every day I go back to my home in East Jerusalem with my wife, and we both go through checkpoints, uh, humiliated by the Israeli army and Israeli security. We see our Palestinian neighbors also being uh, subject to really collective punishment as well as ourselves. And even as Israeli citizens. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, really the lines between the consequences and manifestation of the conflict in Israel, Palestine, especially in Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, the Israeli citizenship did not give you lots of privileges or protection. You basically always been treated like second class citizen. And during the Intifada, that I think was manifested and expressed more and more in that sense. Palestinian-American scholar Mohammed Abu Nimr. The first Palestinian intifada started in 1987. It began as a broad-based populist movement for self-rule. 
and it generally took the form of civil disobedience, strikes, boycotts, graffiti, and barricades. But stone-throwing demonstrations against heavily armed Israeli troops captured international attention. Israeli military forces responded brutally at times, killing and maiming unarmed or lesser-armed demonstrators. This spiral of events led many Israelis to re-examine their attitudes and government policies towards Palestinians. The First Intifada strongly contributed to the momentum that led to the Oslo peace process in 1993. By contrast, the Second Intifada targeted civilians inside Israel, and its tactics included suicide bombs. The Islamist movement Hamas, which won a government majority in recent Palestinian elections, was a key architect of that campaign, which began in the year 2000. A controversial visit by former hardline general Ariel Sharon to a Muslim holy site fueled the outbreak of the Second Intifada, and the suicide bombings that followed helped catapult him to power. All of this brought the already beleaguered Oslo peace process to a bitter end. But my guest, Mohammed Abu Nimr, suggests that the Oslo peace process also failed in part because it never addressed the range of religious instincts that define Palestinian and Israeli identities. In attempting to impose a secular peace, he believes, Oslo instead handed the future over to extremists on both sides. You have a secular peace process that's negotiating the fate of the Holy Land right. without <laughs> input from the religious community. And the only input that they receive on their negotiation is either from Hamas or Jihad or from the Israeli Jewish far religious right. But the input of, I think, mainstream or even religious Muslim and Christian and Jews who work on peace have always been excluded from the negotiation table. And to some extent, it's an irony and it's a kind of a paradox where you cannot negotiate the fate of uh, the, the Dome of the Rock in, in Jerusalem or the holy site in Jerusalem without the input of the Muslim clergy and Muslim uh, community and constituency. I myself have treated this conflict as a pure secular up to the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And gradually, I think more in the U.S. here, actually, I've, I've realized that um, really in, among the Palestinian, like the Egyptian and other Muslim countries, Arab Muslim countries, even if you're secular or so-called you know, non-religious, you still hold all of your values, all of the um, ideas that you hold them are rooted in an Islamic culture. And that Islamic culture, to a great extent, is really influenced, affected by uh, the religion of Islam. Mm -hmm. So we expect Muslim in general in the Arab world to strip away from their self, their identity, their collective identity, this dimension of religion and separate it when it is really the container of their entire identity and the religious right in both sides have managed very successfully to mobilize it in a way to encourage and escalate violence and justify oppression and violence toward the other side. I think that's a really important observation that while officially religious dynamics are bracketed out of the secular peace processes time after time, the right wing, Hamas on the one side and religious right in Israel, inject themselves into the dynamics anyway. But you're saying that sort of ordinary people, people who might be moderate, who might even be secular, but still for whom the, that religious identity and culture is very important, that that in fact is what gets left out. Absolutely. And th mm -hmm. this is the majority. We're right, talking about, right, you know, right. over 60, 70 percent of the people, you know, walk around not necessarily praying five times. But it's interesting. I was in Egypt three weeks ago doing some work on interfaith relation. And I interviewed one of the ex-Islamic Brotherhood leaders who formed his own political party called Wasat or the Middle. And I asked him about that. I said, you know, how important is religion? And he said, religion is the key to unlock 
social and political changes in the Muslim world. Therefore, mm-hmm. I think the election of Hamas can be explained easily in that context. And I, I think the grave mistake that we've been committing is this um, artificial separation between religion and the state that we have here or right. that the Europe have developed. That can't back be imposed the... on other cultures. Precisely. And the outcome become democracy is secular and democracy and Islam become really, really confrontational. Mohammed Abu Nimr, an expert in international conflict resolution. He is a Palestinian citizen of Israel and also an American citizen. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, the second in a series, Two Narratives, Reflections on the Israeli-Palestinian Present. The governments of Israel and the United States are currently deciding how to respond to the victory of the radical Islamist party Hamas in Palestinian elections. My guest, Mohammed Abu Nimr, argues, as other analysts have, that Palestinian Muslims and Christians elected Hamas despite their declared commitment to the destruction of Israel. He says Palestinians voted against the corruption of the Fatah party of the late Yasser Arafat, and they voted for Hamas's commitment to basic social infrastructure, including the need to control paramilitary violence within Palestinian society. Mohammed Abu Nimr has also written that from the point of view of the average Palestinian, Israel has been under right-wing control since the election of Ariel Sharon in 2001. Before Sharon was removed from power by illness earlier this year, he did break from the conservative Likud party and he evacuated right-wing Jewish settlers from the Gaza Strip. But Abu Nimr points out that settlers remain in the West Bank, and Sharon also initiated the construction of an elaborate security barrier in places a wall over 20 feet high that is being built along contested borders in the West Bank. Nevertheless, Mohammed Abu Nimr suggests that this could be a moment of new opportunity. The leadership on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian divide has transitioned away from the forces who oversaw the Oslo peace process. These parties now in place are farther apart from each other, he says, but more effective at mobilizing their own populations. From 1948 till 1993, the Israeli government did not recognize the Palestinian people for right for self-determination or for statehood. And they said, we will only work with you if you give up terrorism, if you recognize the right of the state of Israel to exist. And the Palestinians said, we will only recognize you if you recognize our right for a state. They've reached that historical compromise in 1993. But the difference, those who reached it were the Labour Party, and the Arafati group. Now those two groups are out of power, and now we have two players who are more radical in power, Sharon government or Ehud Olmert. But Sharon has recognized, I mean, there was quite an evolution of his position. Indeed, indeed. When? I mean, in 2000. Mm -hmm. So how do you know that Hamas leadership is not going to To work, negotiate, and make that? Mm -hmm. When we corner any human or even animals, when we corner them, they will get more defensive. And when we put condition and ultimates, nobody is going to recognize that, especially an injured community like the Palestinian people fighting for its dignity. Uh, I think the best remedy is to provide it with this type of security and this type of assurance is that if you negotiate in good faith, there will be a Palestinian viable state, which I think what Hamas is very anxious to mobilize. And there have been, by the way, in the last three weeks, some Israeli Jewish rabbis who met with Hamas and who actually made a statement, uh, and Hamas is exploring exactly like Fatih did in the mid-'80s, communication with segments of the Israeli Jewish uh, society, which I think it's it's a very good indicator that Hamas is willing to talk to some Jewish rabbis and right. Israeli peace, peace I'm not groups. sure we're hearing those stories either over here. Yeah. I want to ask how you respond to something that was said to me by Yossi Klan Halevi, an Israeli yeah. journalist, a Jewish journalist, and a son of a Holocaust survivor. 
he also was a Jewish extremist at a young age yeah. and mm-hmm. um, has said that part of his turning away from that was deciding to no longer be a victim but to be a survivor. And he feels that something that happened among not all Israelis but a majority of Israelis and in the 90s, you know, with the Oslo process, was deciding that they weren't victims but would be survivors. And that also meant seeing the rightness of the Palestinian cause. And he has said that he has felt that that's a move that many Palestinians have not made. I mean, how do you respond to that analysis? In terms of my work and reconciliation and peace building and justice issues, I think that's an inevitable psychological shift from the many Israelis, especially as you indicated, the religious, spiritual uh, colleagues I've worked with throughout these 25 years, I have really sensed that among the individual who deeply committed to the peace process, deeply committed to working with Palestinians and expressing their solidarity, and most important, committed to confront the evil or the wrongdoing in their own community. I think this type of transformation is very essential. In the Palestinian side, there are individuals, there are a number of people and also groups, I think, who have made that shift, who have experienced such transformation, and they have, as a result, consistently for the last 35, 40 years, have been working with Israelis. The difference, as most of us who work in this field know, for a Palestinian to make such a shift is really quite a challenge and really require to face and confront many evil forces within the Palestinian community, even in the sense of wrongdoing, and also be able to explain how could you reach out to the Israeli despite the wall that's in your backyard. And I think, you know, finding the internal strength and the spiritual guiding to answer that question in an empowered way, I've seen it about 200 Palestinians who attended a non-violence conference resistance in December 25th, 2005. Now, I've seen it with many Palestinians who do work with Israeli peace groups, Israeli solidarity groups. I think both Israeli and Palestinian society deeply need to do such transformation. Yet from the study of reconciliation, we know that such a transformation from victimhood to survivor come in a massive, mobilized way after, unfortunately, a political agreement. And I think Mm -hmm. that dimension, that part of the puzzle, is still missing between the Israeli and the Palestinian. We've seen gestures, indicators of that in the years between 93 and 95, where I think thousands of of Israelis and Palestinians engage in a massive people-to-people project. And unfortunately, the peace process got derailed and also prevented further development of this transformation. Palestinian-American scholar of international relations, Mohammed Abu Nimr. This is Speaking of Faith. After a short break, more conversation with him on suicide bombings and internal Palestinian reflection. Also, Palestinian educator Sami Adwan, who's bringing contrasting Israeli and Palestinian narratives of history side-by-side to school children. This exploration continues at speakingoffaith.org. This week, you can read Mohammed Abu Nimr's analysis of the electoral victory of Hamas and listen to the first part of this series with Israeli journalist Yossi Klein-Halevi. While you're there, subscribe to our free weekly podcast. Listen on demand at any time, at any place. Also, find my journal on this week's topic and sign up for our email newsletter. All this and more at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media.
Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Naomi's New Morning with Naomi Judd, Sundays at 10, 9 Central, on Hallmark Channel, and by Thrive and Builds with Habitat for Humanity, an opportunity for Lutherans to help build more than 300 decent homes this year with families in need, online at thriveandbuilds.com. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, two narratives, reflections on the Israeli-Palestinian present. Any discussion, any study of the history and present of this region reveals irreconcilable narratives of the same lived events. We're listening this hour to Palestinian experiences and perspectives seeking to understand the difficulty of peace in a land that its inhabitants on both sides of conflict consider holy. I'm in conversation with Mohammed Abu Nimr. A Palestinian born in Israel and once a nationalist activist, he's been working now for many years to develop Palestinian knowledge of Islamic traditions of nonviolence. The challenge in this, he says, is in convincing Palestinians that nonviolent resistance is not the same as passivity. So I want to say that, you know, what we expect also and we work with that within the Israeli society with the Jewish rabbis we work with or Israeli peace groups, even with American Jewish rabbis we work with, when they say, what do you expect us to do? And I said, just to go back to your community and precisely preach the message that the violence that the government policy is taking into the West Bank and Gaza is morally wrong, and it will not achieve security to the Israeli, it will not achieve security to the Palestinian. And some of the PC groups, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I work with, they continue to speak in those two languages. Palestinians need to be nonviolent, but the Israeli government and society have the right to defend itself. So I think we need to be here on the same level. There are numbers of Palestinian NGOs, number of Palestinian individual who constantly have been talking about the need to negotiate, the need to practice and use the methods of dialogue and also calling for even direct nonviolent action. And just if you cover the wall, right? Mm-hmm. The, the wall. You spoke the wall about, that the Israelis building, yes. They have erected there. Just if you go for the last three years and just to trace how did the Palestinian villages resist the wall? And you will find just an incredible amount of stories of nonviolent resistance, okay. both including foreign as well as local Palestinian committees who have been fighting the wall in a nonviolent resistance way. And in, in amazingly, in some villages, really, really it worked. In both sides, I should say, though, the Palestinian and the Israeli the nonviolent resistance movement in both of them, I think, need to be empowered and supported by outsider as well as insider. That's probably an important point to make, isn't it? But even as you expect Israelis to be talking about what may be morally wrong about Israeli actions with Palestinians, I mean, are there Palestinians who are talking about the morality of suicide bombings? Yeah, signatures were gathered, I think, in 2002, 2003, against the suicide bombing. And again, this information is out there, not only myself, but hundreds of other Palestinians spoke against it. And I know that there were several articles and petitions that were put in the newspaper, Palestinian newspaper, calling against the suicide bombing. And incidentally, not only because it is politically, strategically wrong, because morally, mm-hmm. I think it affects damage the Palestinian internal society, even to some extent more than the Israeli society, because in 10, 15 years uh, or five years, I don't know when, but a Palestinian state will be created. But then how do you deal with all the leftover 
of the means in which we arrive to a Palestinian state. Mm -hmm. A a small group, yet it is consistently uh, making their voice. And as I said earlier, it's the same message that we need also to hear on the Israeli side from the average Israeli or the PC groups to say, Occupation is illegal and immoral. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we need to empower those two camps and the two sides who hopefully, you know, will gain more power and more influence internally. You know, what is so hard about talking about this or reading about it, trying to understand it from a distance, I'm quite aware that it's harder to live it, but is that there are, as I've, I've heard you say, and I've heard many people say as I've been thinking about this recently, there are two narratives and they often are not telling the same story. And I'd like to ask you, and this would be my last question, as someone who's living in this country, living in Washington, what could you explain that would help Americans understand or, you know, think about this more intelligently, perhaps more helpfully even for people there? Thank you for the question. I mean, I myself as an uh, sort of an, an Arab American, Muslim American, whatever, you know, but basically as an American citizen also, sort of added another dimension to my identity yes. as if it's not enough. <laughs> uh, it It's really very difficult as an Arab American also to constantly be on the defensive part and explaining that our historical views of that region of that conflict mm-hmm. has been tainted to some extent in a very uh, sort of imbalanced, biased way in both not only media, the typical one, but also policy-wise to the extent that you find yourself constantly needing to carry on books, uh, articles, information, pictures to show people that a conflict like this will always have two narratives, two (laughs) stories. And the first thing to do that I tell my students also, before you pass a judgment, you have to learn the two narratives. If you read an Israeli newspaper, you have to look at an Arab newspaper. If you look at pictures at a movie, you always have to seek the narrative of the other side. The second point is not really to look at these people as crazy. People you don't understand. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, this notion of many people ask me, oh, when these people are going to stop fighting? You know, as if you live there, then there is 100% of the two communities are fighting. So the third point is that in any given conflict, even like the Israeli-Palestinian, you always will find groups and individuals who confronted, resisted the violence. Okay. And it's very important to tap and connect with these groups in your attempt to understand the conflict. I think it will give you a hope. It will give you a sense that things can change. And things have changed you know, tremendously since you know, I was a kid, you know, in the 80s or 70s. They've moved you know, a long way in terms of community relation and political possibilities. The fourth thing is that it really matters what we do here. Whatever we do here, whatever we decide to believe and say, have a great manifestation and impact and influence on the fate and the future of Palestinians and Israelis. Mohammed Abu Nimr is associate professor at the American University School of International Service in Washington, D.C. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, two narratives, reflections on the Israeli-Palestinian present. My final guest, Sami Adwan, is an educator in the Palestinian West Bank city of Bethlehem, where he spoke to me. From childhood, he inhabited a distinctly Palestinian narrative of restricted movement within his own land. Well, I was born in a small town northwest of Hebron to a farmer's family. After I finished my ninth grade, I had to go to Halhul. It's a nearby school commuting by bus and in the way to school or to home we used to 
being stopped by Israeli military soldiers, uh, detained, beaten, searched, our books thrown away. So we lived a very difficult life in this moment. And all my suffering, all my, uh, you know, trauma make me very upset and very, you know, demonized in my way of thinking and working. And uh, for me, it was the Israeli occupation uh, are my major resource of troubles and difficulties and trauma. And I couldn't see the Israelis as except one face. The soldiers, you know, all Jews are the same. At college, Sami Adwan was an activist and a leader in Fatah, and he was imprisoned for six months by Israeli forces because of that association. But in prison, he experienced a turning point in his approach to Israelis. Sami Adwan faced no specific charges, yet he was asked to sign a document written in Hebrew that he could not read. He refused and watched while one Israeli soldier defended him in an argument with others. Suddenly, he says, Israel had more than one face. Sami Adwan became an educator. In the early 1990s, as grassroots encounters of all kinds flourished between Israeli and Palestinian people, he became a co-director of PRIME, the Peace Research Institute in the Middle East. Sami Adwan and an Israeli colleague, Dan Barone of Ben-Gurion University, began working with teams of teachers from six Israeli schools and six Palestinian schools. They are collaboratively developing parallel Israeli and Palestinian narratives of their shared controversial history and teaching these side-by-side in classrooms. They decided to continue this project after the onset of the Second Intifada and the breakdown of the Oslo process when many collaborative projects faltered. In year 2000, we have discussed this issue. Should we continue taking into consideration all the reality and the difficulties on the ground, or should we stop our cooperation? We used to meet at checkpoints because he couldn't come to me, I couldn't come to him. So we used to meet and run administrative things at the checkpoints. You're talking about your colleague, Dan Baron, with whom you work on this project, Prime. And this is a project for Palestinians to write their own textbooks for the first time. And, you know, correct me if I'm not saying this precisely, and write them kind of side by side with an Israeli telling of that same history. Mm-hmm. We want to deal within our project with history because we think part of the continuation of the conflicts is situated in how we perceive history, mm-hmm. how we relate to history. It's unique because, first of all, we use teachers to write the histories in both sides. They feel empowered. They feel they own the process and own the product. So the, these six Palestinian history teachers, six Israeli history teachers, we have been working together in groups, in meetings, where the Palestinians write their narrative mm-hmm. of the history and the Israeli write their narrative and the history. Right, and also you don't reconcile those narratives. Uh, it's not up to us to reconcile the narrative. Mm-hmm. It's up to the children and the teachers and whoever would like to read it in both sides to make his initiative of reconciliations. That's one thing. The other thing also, it takes time to reconcile narratives because we are in the middle of a conflict. So it needs time, maybe 10 years, 5 years, 6 years. It could need generation. And the issue is not a matter of reconciling the narrative. The, The issue is for the first time in history that the Palestinian are able to read the Israeli narrative as they would like to narrate it in their society. Vice versa, it's the first time that for for the Israelis to read the Palestinian narrative as it is narrated in the Palestinian society. Actually, we intended that this project will be for a post-conflict situation. So you're kind of building on something that will be there as a resource when yes, there is some kind of political reconciliation. Each side will keep his own narrative, his own perceptions, and we know it's going to take time. In the light of a potential peace agreement, this could change. In the parallel but contradictory Israeli and Palestinian narratives that Sami Adwan's team is compiling, he says, 
One man's terrorist is another man's hero. One man's emigrant is another man's refugee. And contrasting Israeli and Palestinian narratives continue to be written into the present. Ariel Sharon ordered the construction of the elaborate security barrier in places a wall to safeguard his citizens during one of the most violent phases of the suicide bombing campaign of the Second Intifada. But Sami Adwan calls this an apartheid wall. In places it runs between farms and farmhouses, between small businesses and their former customers. Like the checkpoints, it also stands between many Palestinians and their jobs. Sami Adwan was unable to get a permit to travel to Jerusalem for this interview and another meeting to which he'd been invited. As an educator, Sami Adwan says he's observed that religion is most aggressively invoked in Palestinian and Israeli narratives as a resource to justify further separation and conflict. I wondered if his work also suggests a constructive role for the three monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, that share holy land. Religious people in the three faiths can have a strong role in how to present the others and the self. Okay. And also it comes to us here as a Palestinian Israelis. Would a Palestinian try to live for a moment in the Israeli shoes? And would the Israeli try a moment to live in the Palestinian shoes? Mm-hmm. And there's an Israeli guy, he's, he was a reporter and he went to Gaza. He played the Palestinian, you know, as a Palestinian worker. And he wrote a very nice book, The Enemy is Myself, he wrote it. And it's, it's, it shows how we are locked in a dogmatic situation and we are afraid to get out of it. And we need these people to get out of their own box and try to live for a moment in the other side. We know the Israeli need security, mm-hmm. but also we, as Palestinians, we need our humanity and our dignity. We need to be feel human. We want to touch ourselves and see we are human. Right. We want to live. I live very close to the, wall, the the apartheid wall, the separation wall. Yes, the wall. And I can't see through it. My eyesight is limited to a wall of 8 to 12 meters high, ugly as it is. From the other side, this wall starts to take in piece by piece my own property, my own house. So I'm losing the space, I'm losing the sight. Right. So I need the Israeli to come and look with me to this situation. You have written, and I think this is a very kind of courageous and must have been a difficult sentence to write, that many Palestinians feel that sympathizing too much with Israelis could Mm -hmm. lead to justification for the occupation and, you know, that it's hard for Palestinians to dwell on the the vast suffering of the Holocaust because does that overpower or undermine the validity of the Palestinians' own suffering? Mm -hmm. And I wonder if your work, with schools, with these textbooks and the narratives. I wonder if you've come to a better sense of the religious and human drama that is behind Israeli uh, fears and actions. You know, how how does that affect your sense of what it is to be Palestinian and to live with that suffering? That's not only through work and, you know, that's also through relationship because Professor Dan Bonon has done a lot of issues on the Holocaust. This is your Israeli counterpart in this project. Mm-hmm. And I got, yeah, it's part of that. It is a very paradox and it's very difficult issues. I think we need to touch the conflict at the human level. I think if we still deal with the conflict at the political level, official level, we really become faceless in these history and we become just objects, numbers, people, etc. Maybe the suffering of the others make me feel uh, more passion and more compassion at emotional level. Now, if you talk about it at cognitive level, look, the Holocaust is part of me also. The Holocaust is part of my problem. The Holocaust played so much role in my suffering. Mm -hmm. So are we both victims of that Holocaust? And that's a way, at least you have part of you said, well, they suffer. 
but in the other part of you, but I am suffering because of their suffering. Right. So what do you in this uh, We could get locked in that, yes. You got locked in it. And my position is like this. It's not going to help denying other suffering. It's not going to help at all. What can help is try to relate the suffering, even if they are not at the same level of suffering. But when you put it down at individual level, a mother who lost her child, either be a Jew or a Muslim or Christian, it's a suffering for the mother because of she lost the child. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a picture in an American magazine recently, the Atlantic Monthly, about checkpoints between Israel and, and Palestinian and the occupied territories. And there's a picture of a young Palestinian who's being frisked by an Israeli guard, and you really see the humiliation that's involved mm-hmm. in that. And then you also see guards encountering, you know, having rocks thrown at them and Molotov cocktails. And also you, you get a sense that here are people who are trying to protect their people and secure their land. And mm-hmm. uh, it seems that in these pictures, you kind of get a sense of this, again, the, another, we, you and I keep talking about things that get locked in, this knot this that's very hard to untangle of safeguarding of this this feeling that both sides have, that they have to keep safe from the other, Mm -hmm. um, while also longing for peace. I hear that in your stories. I I know that there are many, many more expressions of it, both among Palestinians and and Israelis. Um, Can you see beyond this situation? If I don't see beyond these immediate situation, I wouldn't be working in this difficult time on this long-term, hopefully, peace-building projects. Mm-hmm. If I am locked in the, my immediate reality, I will lose my sense of humanity as a person and I feel impotent of doing anything. And I see that the strength coming out because I'm, I will try my heart to keep myself being able to see beyond these immediate incidents mm-hmm. myself it's all the palestine actually not myself when i traveled from bethlehem to ramallah i myself being humiliated i wasn't beaten but i was asked to stay in car for one hour 15 minutes 20 minutes i was asked to leave the car stand in the sun on the rain so it's a whole population there not that many people see beyond this immediate reality but i would say this scenario is that you put there's there's difference among them. Here I am on my land, going from Ramallah to Bethlehem. I am here in the occupied territories of '67. I am here. The Israeli soldiers came to me. People sometimes think about the symptoms of the situation, but the causes of the situation is very important. Still, you know, there's a settlements there, taking the lands, harassing people, taking the waters. Having special road for settlers on my land, on my Palestinian people land, and I'm not allowed to travel in a road that was built by Israeli on my land. Mm-hmm. These are a killing point moment in myself, and I see how much I can resist these influences, how much I can sustain energy to go beyond them. When I say digging now a tunnel, so I cannot travel on earth, I have to travel in tunnels because I'm not allowed to use Highway 60, for example, there's a moment of silence and despair comes to back and forth. How to keep this strength? It's my children, the Palestinian children, the children of the Israelis, everybody's children. Mm. Neighborhood is one of the basic teaching in Islam to protect your neighbors. If the integrity of my neighbor is being threatened, this means my integrity is being threatened. Even if he's not a Muslim, if he's a Jew, mm. if he's a Christian, if he's so on, so on, so That sometimes gives me a sense, while well, Israelis our neighbors, Jews are our neighbors, so if they have their state, you know, should respect that state. But would that also give me the right to my own state? Would that give me really a space to have my own state? Sami Adwan is an associate professor in the Faculty of Education at Bethlehem University.
The shared holy land of Jews, Muslims, and Christians, it seems, is the extreme intersection we seek to trace each week on this program, the intersection of religious ideas responsive and at times captive to human and political realities. My Palestinian and Israeli guests have made one striking suggestion in tandem that Western analyses and negotiations fail when they bracket out the religious instincts that define these peoples and their tie to this land. It is intriguing that of all the spiritual values these people share, Sami Adwan emphasizes the critical role religious people might play on both sides of the conflict by simply humanizing the face of the other. His educational project, Drawing out the contrasting Israeli-Palestinian narratives and holding them in tension might present a model for our further reflection as this history continues to unfold. Continue this conversation at speakingoffaith.org. Contact us with your thoughts. This week, visit our audio gallery of a Palestinian view of checkpoints and the security barrier being erected in the West Bank. View a chapter from Sami Adwan's textbooks with Israeli and Palestinian narratives and hear the first program in this series with Israeli journalist Yossi Klein-Halevi. Now you can listen on demand for no charge to this and previous programs in our archives or subscribe to our free weekly podcast. Listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also sign up for our email newsletter, which includes my journal on each topic and a preview of upcoming shows. That's speakingoffaith.org. This program was produced by Kate Moose, Mitch Hanley, Colleen Sheck, and Jody Abramson with editor Ken Hom. Our web producer is Trent Gillis with assistance from Ilona Piotrowska. Many thanks this week to Professor Ronald Krebs of the University of Minnesota. The executive producer of Speaking of Faith is Bill Buesenberg, and I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Naomi's New Morning with Naomi Judd, Sundays at 10, 9 central, on Hallmark Channel. And by Thrivent Financial for Lutherans, a Fortune 500 financial services organization. Funding is also provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide. On the web at fordfound.org. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Next week, approaching prayer from religious and non-religious perspectives. Please join us for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media.